We want to continue with our class on Christianity and culture as we're thinking through some of these important things about being uh, confessing Christians, members of the citizen, or citizens of the kingdom of God, which is eternal, transcendent, global, spiritual, doesn't have land, and yet we're also citizens of a local kingdom, if you will, common kingdom, um, uh, or republic, or democracy, or you know, various forms of government. We all have citizenship somewhere in some geopolitical nation. For most of us here, I'm sure that's the United States of America. And we live in a culture. And so we're trying to think through these things. Um, let's consider real quick where we've been. We considered the cultural mandate of Genesis 1. Uh, we are created in the image of God. Uh, to reflect his holy ways by working as he worked, uh, by resting as he rested on the Lord's day, uh, and by ruling over creation. And we talked about all that's involved with that. We talked about the separation of what is common and what is holy, that that took place at the fall. Uh, So we live in this common realm where we live alongside uh, unbelievers. We don't create a a holy community someplace. The church is the holy community, and we are in the world, but not of the world. Uh, We talked about common grace and what that is. Uh, These are just themes that are going to come up in each class. They're important for us to understand. Common grace is uh, the way God curbs uh, the devastating effects of sin in the world. Uh, It's what gives us rain and sunshine, every good thing that believers and unbelievers both enjoy in the common realm, food, you know, happiness, that kind of thing, uh, cell phone, cell phones sometimes, uh, nice little jingle, let's all look at the person who that was, make them feel uncomfortable, uh, uh, where was I, um, Common grace also is the gifts that we have that uh, are given to unbelievers and believers alike that allow us to make cultural achievements, uh, be they in the arts or science, technology, all those kinds of things. Um, We talked about the institution of civil government and the development of culture, which we will return to uh, in a couple of classes later. Um, Genesis 4, the mark that's put upon Cain. That's where God institutes civil government uh, to curb the effects of sin and evil in the world. Not perfectly, but to curb it. And uh, so it's, it's something that's instituted after the fall. Very important for us to understand, not before the fall. So the state is something totally temporary. And uh, it's not the Savior. We talked about the Noahic Covenant last week. In Genesis 9, which all human beings are in, it's God's common grace covenant with the earth, despite man's depravity, in order to sustain the earth until the consummation. And all of creation is in this uh, Noahic covenant, and uh, we live and operate in that covenant alongside unbelievers. In the Mosaic covenant, okay, later on in history, we see the common and the holy coming together just for Israel. So holy and common are separate in the world, you know, uh, from the fall up until Sinai, when for that one particular nation, holy and common come together. So all the civil laws of Israel were holy. 
civil laws for us are not holy. There's nothing holy about uh, the, the, the speed limit being 65 miles an hour, which I think is, well, never mind. Uh, it doesn't matter what I think. Um, but some of us struggle with that speed limit. I, I, I have this. I'm sorry. This is Sunday school. I just, here's what bugs me is that, you know, I lived in Germany, and you have the Autobahn where there's no speed limit, and there's less accidents, and you have more training. And then you come here, and you have the 65-mile-an-hour speed, which nobody drives. Only the slow person drives. And then I had a CHP tell me recently, as he wrote me a ticket, uh, he said, Mr. Brown, if you drive 70, 75, no one's going to pull you over. Then why is the law say 65? Well, because we have a cushion. Well, how about we just have the mark, here's where the law is, and if you transgress that, you get fined, but push it up. And he said, well, you know, if we do that, then it was our conversation, then everybody will go 15. I said, well, then cite those people. And it wasn't getting me out of the ticket. <laughs> I was driving 80, which is what everybody drives in the carpool lane. There's nobody in the carpool lane. How am I a threat to society? How am I a threat? How am I a threat to society? They're supposed to be there protecting us. He wasn't protecting us. He wasn't protecting me. He was fishing. He was hunting. Anyway, I, you can see I struggle. I live in this world with you too, okay? I am a... I am a Sinner and fallen and flawed like everyone else. Anyway, and so if we don't like some legislation, we, should ought, to ch- we ought to change it. And I say, let's change the speed limit. It shouldn't be 65 because nobody goes 65. So anyway, that's my rant for the morning. I won't give you any more. Uh, we live in con- it, it's applicable because we live in the Noahic Covenant. Uh, and it's not holy. It's common. It's a common, so, but in Israel, all of the civil laws were holy, only for that nation. And so when you read through Leviticus, which, you know, yeah, it can be boring, or reading through the second part of Exodus, it can be boring. It's kind of, you're reading through a lot of code, you know, it's like reading through the penal code, state of California. It's not always exciting. But what we have to understand is that it was holy for that nation, and uh, those aren't timeless Laws, they were applied to uh, a particular nation for a particular time, um, and yet the substance of all those laws was good and right in the sense that it's about loving God and loving neighbor. Anyway, Mosaic Covenant has passed away. We live in the New Covenant. Holy and common are separate. We are holy as we are in Christ, but the land in which we live is common. Uh, the new covenant, the kingdom of God, is spiritual in nature, not limited to one geopolitical nation. We live in a, a setting similar to Abraham prior to the Mosaic Covenant, who was called a, a pilgrim. We live in a setting similar to uh, the Judean exiles in Babylon, uh, who uh, were told in Matthew 29, look, uh, pray for the welfare of the city, uh, do well in the city, um, uh, you know, live in the in the common realm alongside everyone else. Um, we're going to spend a whole Sunday class on the development of culture um, in the coming weeks and pick up on, on Jeremiah 29. But, and, and, I, and I said last week that we were going to talk about vocation today, which is very important. 
But um, I thought before I sat down to start preparing the lesson, and before we talk about vocation, um, there's one thing missing in all of this. We need to talk about the mission of the church. So, uh, so here's my plan. Is today we're going to talk about the mission of the church in light of all this. Um, next week we have the congregational meeting. When we come back the following week, we'll talk about vocation and the building of culture. And then uh, if we can get through that in one class, and I want to have time for questions and answers, then we'll talk more about the civil magistrate, which is really important. We'll, talk, we'll look at uh, Romans 13 very carefully, and we're going, to, we're going to try to address some of those hard questions. I want to have maybe a few weeks, maybe after the new year, where we really address those hard questions. How do we, how do we deal with the magistrate, especially when we believe the magistrate is erring and is um, overstepping its boundaries in uh, the, the authority that God has given? Um, we all live in that, and we all... We need to talk about the difference between critiquing the magistrate and mocking the magistrate. And uh, one is permissible and important and necessary for Christians, and the other is not. Uh, the other is sinful. And, uh, and that's hard. We often cross the line out of, you know, out of our frustration. And, um, and I'm included with that. But let's, let's, uh, let's, we're going to wait on those things today. We've got to talk. And all of it crosses over, as you'll be seeing. All of it, we address all of this each week a little bit. But today we need to talk about the mission of the church uh, before we move on. Because the, the church has a specific mission. And when I say the church, um, I mean, yes, the, the people of God in this new covenant era. And so we've looked at, you know, back here. Adam, cultural mandate, family, all of that is before the fall. Then there's the uh, Genesis 3.15 and the gospel promise. That's where holy and common are separate, separated. You have the Noahic covenant, which all of creation is in. You have then the Abrahamic covenant, which we talked about, which is uh, the covenant of grace in its old and new covenant stages. It's all anchored in the Abrahamic covenant. Old has to do with Israel. That's when the holy and common come together. We now live in the new covenant. I, you often see me do this. Why do I do that? Why do I make it? It's going out to the, the ends of the earth. And so Matthew 28 and Acts 1 give us the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is the mission of the church. And where often we fall into trouble is when we confuse the Great Commission with the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate is for all humans. The cultural mandate is build culture. Uh, You know, work your jobs. uh, Perfect the arts. Uh, advanced technology, and the Christian participates in that, seeking to do that well to the glory of God and for the benefit of his neighbor. That's the point of your vocation. Um, but the unbeliever participates that, in that as well, in the cultural mandate, and sometimes the unbeliever exceeds the believer in quality. And it's possible for a, a unbeliever to write a better song than a believer. and In fact, when it comes to rock and roll, that happens 99.9% of the time. 
and uh, because it's a co- it's common realm. Um, you know, there's really no such thing as Christian rock, but we'll address that in another day. It's part of the common realm. And, uh, but the, great, the cultural mandate, we can't confuse with the Great Commission. Because what did Jesus say in the Great Commission? We can turn there, Matthew 28, right before the ascension. Matthew 28, verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the basis. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's the goal. Go and make disciples. Not make culture or make governments. That's all part of the common realm. Make disciples uh, of all nations. And so it's not limited to the Jew. Uh, nations doesn't mean governments. Some have read that into there somehow. Um, nations uh, is the Hebrew or the old Hebrew word goyim, which just means Gentiles. It means non-Jews. Um, go make disciples of all nations. And then the means to that goal is this, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, word and sacrament. And then the promise, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Um, another part of that commission we find in Acts 1. If you turn over to Acts 1, verse 8, right before the ascension, Acts 1, uh, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, that's the Great Commission, as we've understood it historically. How, then, did the apostles put that into practice? How did they apply that? Because that's the story of Acts. Acts 1 through 28. What did they do? Did they become scientists and um, uh, you know, screenplay writers? And um, No, they went out and they... They applied this by making disciples. They didn't build governments. They built church government. They went out and they planted churches. They planted churches. They go from city to city to city to city, where the most people are, where culture is heightened. And what I mean by that is that you have, you know, the, the, uh, whatever is happening in culture, be it in the, the academy or in the arts, or in government, is always uh, at a heightened level in the cities. And they go to the cities. That's where the most people are. And they plant churches. Jesus went to the, the backwaters, backwater areas of uh, Judea because it was before his ascension. But in the Great Commission, he says, go, all authority in heaven has been given to me. Make disciples of all nations. And so they start hitting it. Corinth, Ephesus, Rome. And they plant churches in these places. And uh, the churches have one very particular uh, uh, means that they use to make disciples. And we see that beginning in Jerusalem. It starts in Jerusalem, just as Jesus says. Acts starts in Jerusalem, then goes to Judea, then goes to Samaria, then goes to the ends of the earth. It starts in Jerusalem, ends in Rome, which was considered ends of the earth at that time. 
And what do we see them do? They, they preach the gospel. They, Acts 2.42, they, after they were baptized, they continued steadfastly in apostolic doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And so this, this is how the apostles apply the Great Commission. It, it, the Great Commission is something distinct from the cultural mandate, which was given before the fall and was reiterated in the Noahic Covenant. This is for all people, but uh, the, this is for the church. The state has no authority to do this. It has no authority. I, I hear of churches where the president, and I'm not just speaking of President Obama, I've heard of President Bush, I've heard of President uh, Carter, I've heard of President Reagan, I've heard of President, um, what was the other guy, after, after Bush Sr., Clinton, uh, of going to churches. Going to churches and speaking on Sundays. The, the government has absolutely no authority to do that. Has no authority to do that. You know, and if they came in with guns and said, you know, you're going to come here and we're going to listen to you, you know, I, I, I would be the first one out the door. Um, no, I, you have your own respective place, but you don't speak with authority in the kingdom of God. And sometimes we act like the state is, well, that's, you know, that's above the kingdom of God. No, it isn't. The kingdom of God is above all. States come and go. They study history. They rise, they fall. They come, they go. We're always discovering new civilizations. Oh, wow, this was an advanced civilization. It's forgotten today. But the kingdom of God is forever. So the cultural mandate and the Great Commission, we all participate in this, but this is only for the church. The church has this... Has this um, this mandate. They plant churches with three marks. There's three marks that identify a true church. Preaches the gospel, administers the sacraments, and exercises church discipline. Those are, that's how we identify a, an apostolic true church. And that church is the, the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God. It's the only institution on earth that has the authority and responsibility to open the doors to the kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. And so while God rules and preserves creation through the Noahic covenant, he proclaims reconciliation and the forgiveness of sins through his covenant of grace, the Abrahamic, which in this period is called the new covenant, mediated by Christ. And he uses the church to do that. Um, Every other institution... The, the family, the school, the state is secondary in the practice of the Christian religion. In the practice of the Christian religion, the church is the first institution. The family is the primary building block of society, going back to the fall before the uh, gospel was even necessary. The family is the primary building block of society, but the church is the primary building block of the kingdom of God. It's very important for us to get this. Um, you know, the dad is the, the father is the priest of the home, but he is not a pope. He, he is not the leader of the church. Uh, Christ is that leader, and he has formed his church on earth. It is identifiable uh, by, by living communions. 
that he is called of people from very different backgrounds and, and, and look very different from one another, but we gather together around the preaching of the word and the, the Lord's table. We are baptized into the church, and we are under the authority of Christ that is delegated to local elders. The church is where we are summoned by God to worship him on his terms. We have no right to excommunicate ourselves from the church or to stay away from church. We are, we are, we are to come to church to worship him. Uh, we are to experience the communion of saints. It's the place where God addresses us as his people. And his people respond to him in song, prayer, and confession. Worship and fellowship, as I mentioned earlier, are not means to an end but are ends in themselves. This is where the action is at. Uh, This is central for the Christian life. It's not merely a pit stop so we get ready for the week. It it is where the action is at. And we are also receiving God's means of grace for our sanctification. And the kingdom of God is distinct from the the common kingdom of the earth. And I I want to point out um, four ways in which it is distinct. It is distinct. These, these kingdoms are distinct. Um, God rules over all. He rules over all. It's all. All of the world is his. But he rules over the church in a distinctive way that, that Scripture bears out very clearly. Um, the church has its own distinct mission, first of all. It's a distinct mission. Uh, the, the Great Commission is different from the cultural mandate. Christ and his apostles did not institute a geopolitical nation, did not institute a school. Um, they instituted the church. And the church cannot and must not be identified with America or any other geopolitical nation or culture. Uh, we cannot attach the church's identity to a national or ethnic identity. For in the church, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither American nor Iranian. Um, We are one in Jesus Christ. And there should be nothing in the church worship service that a a Christian from another nation who is in that worship service could not give a hearty amen to. Everybody hear me on that? That's big. Because there's a lot of shenanigans that go on in churches today. Praying for some kind of foreign policy or something that maybe a, a believer from another nation if he was here, he would say, well, wait a minute, I can't agree with that. Then why is it in part of the worship service? Why is it part of the worship service? We all, Christians from all over the globe should be able to say amen to. Now, we can pray for the magistrate. We can pray for the peace and prosperity of our nation. And, you know, and if you're visiting a church in another country, which I recommend you do sometime, um, to see your brothers and sisters in another church, and if they're praying for the peace and prosperity of that country, then you, can, you should be able to say, well, yeah, we, that's part of what Scripture calls us to do. But uh, there may be something they're praying for that would conflict with your beliefs as an American citizen, and that, at that point, we have to realize, okay, where are we crossing the line here from uh, identifying the church with a geopolitical nation? It has a distinct mission. The church has its own distinct practices, that's number two. Word, sacrament, fellowship, okay, that's not for the world. That's not part of the cultural mandate. Word and sacrament are not part of the cultural mandate. Word and sacrament are specific to the, the church. And, uh, they, and only those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ have a right to those sacraments. Uh, I have to believe on the Lord Jesus 
to be baptized and then bring my children into baptism, and my children can't even come to the table until they profess faith in Christ. Another distinct practice that's different from the world is celebration of the Lord's Day, what we're all doing here today. Um, One of my professors put it this way, Lord's Day observance is a brilliant way to be countercultural and to offer testimony to a world that claims its own all-consuming importance. By keeping the Lord's Day holy, set apart, we testify that we are willing to set aside our cultural labors for a day and to suffer whatever harmful consequences that may bring for advancement in this world, such as not getting promoted because you won't work on Sunday, uh, because we belong to another kingdom that is of much greater importance and that is the source of our true hope and confidence. If we don't take the Lord's Day seriously, we have no right to even be talking about uh, Christian culture. Start there. Uh, this is countercultural to the world. On the Lord's Day, we, are, we have one day that is holy. That's the fourth commandment. On, on the seventh day, he blessed and made it holy. Well, how come we don't make Saturday? Well, because it's the, the birthday of the new creation when Christ was raised from the dead, is the first day of the week. It's still holy. It's made holy now, though. Holy means set apart. And so we withdraw from culture on that day, which is what we're doing now. And we need to really think about that in terms of how we live our lives on uh, you know, the six and the one. The six and the one. We're to withdraw from culture on the Lord's day. So we have our own distinct practices. The whole world doesn't have that. And that's why we can't impose laws saying... You all need to keep the Lord's Day. Um, well, they don't even understand it. That's, you're asking an unregenerate heart to act like they're regenerate. And, uh, and while man knows in, intrinsically that he can't keep working all the time, there has to be some break, um, we, we have to recognize that uh, the Lord's Day is a day that has been blessed and given to us so that we can come, set aside cultural practices. The world doesn't see it that way. The world says, earn more money. Work through Sunday. Enjoy Sunday the way you want. It's your weekend. The, the, the Christian religion says, no, God has given you six days to fulfill your vocation and do whatever you want. The seventh day is holy, a day for worship, a day for coming together as the kingdom of God, a day for experiencing blessing. We have our own distinct practices. The church has its own distinct mission, its own distinct practices, it has its own distinct government. 1 Timothy 3, elders, deacons. 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 4, uh, uh, ministers of the word. Ephesians 4, ministers of the word. Uh, we find in Acts 7, the institution of the diaconal office. Uh, Titus 1, elders. Church authority is not legislative. It is proclamatory. While the state has the power to make laws, the church has only the power to declare the laws and doctrines that already appear in Scripture. We don't make laws. Ministers and elders can say and do only that which Scripture authorizes them to say and do. So when I'm, you know, giving a little uh, rant earlier, you know, out of just fun about the uh, the speed limit being 65, I'm speaking as a citizen. I'm not speaking as a minister. I'm not saying, you know, we need to change this as the church. 
Um, I'm just, since we're in Sunday school, and this isn't a sermon, um, just you're seeing me for, for what I am, a citizen like you. But ministers and elders can, from, for, as we speak on behalf of the Lord, we can only say and do that which Scripture authorizes us to say and do. We cannot teach anything beyond what Scripture teaches and cannot bind the consciences of Christians beyond how Scripture already binds it. So we can have opinions about things that Scripture doesn't particularly address. Um, and there's a lot of stuff, you know, a whole, all kinds of stuff we can have opinions on, from, with, from uh, legislated laws to how I should dress to what kind of music you should listen to, to should we have pews or should we stand. Uh, scripture doesn't address these things, not, not specifically. Uh, but so, so those are not laws that, that ministers and elders can, can bind the human conscience with, the Christian conscience. That, so Christian liberty, Christian liberty is maximized. It's maximized as, uh, as ministers and elders stick to only what the Bible has to say. But when we speak from what the Bible has to say, then we're speaking on behalf of the Lord. So come to church. It's not my opinion. It's God's opinion. Um, pray. It's not my opinion. God's opinion. How about this one? Sing loudly. My opinion or God's opinion? It's God's opinion. I'm not binding your conscience when I say, we need to sing a little louder. Because the Psalms are filled with be loud, shout, make noise. And so so you see the line there. There's a lot of stuff where ministers, and I'm sure I have many times, and I have to uh, beg your forgiveness for that, where a minister can easily cross the line into a personal opinion and not what Scripture says. Um, and, so, and if you're not sure about that, you know, kindly send me an email or, or, or call me or speak to me face-to-face and say, so Mike, you know, is that Scripture or is that something from Scripture or are you just giving us your opinion if you feel that maybe I've crossed the line? Um, it's always good when the church... You know, when we, when we speak face-to-face in that way. So we have our own distinct mission, distinct practices, distinct government. And there, and there are some distinct ethics that the, that the church has. So let me explain what I mean by that. Um, you know, in the, in the state, what's the ethic? Uh, and Paul's not, he talks about this in, in Romans 12 and Romans 13. What, what's, the, what's the ethic that the state lives by? Is it forgiveness, grace, mercy? justice. Uh, the, the, the term in Latin is lex talionis. Anybody know what that means? Basic, basically, eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. And that goes back to the Noahic covenant. What did he say about those who take the life of humans? Come on now. You, you know the Bible. What does it say? What's that? By their life, by the blood that you shed, your blood will be shed. Right. Their life should be taken. Capital punishment is in the Noahic Covenant. And that's something, again, that predates Mosaic Law. It's, it's written into nature. We get it. You get what you deserve. You didn't study, you don't get an A. Lex talionis. Uh, you, you, you missed the fence, you don't get a home run. Lex talionis. We get that. That's not bad. That's not evil. That is right. And that's why we get upset when we see things in the world. 
We're like, how can this be? This is wrong. And we know, you know, and so we were watching probably, for many of us, the, the, the events unfold in San Bernardino. Uh, you know, there's a sense of justice when we find out that, okay, these guys are, are killed. Lex Talion, it goes back to the Noahic. It's part of common grace. It's part of uh, natural law. It's, it's part of what we understand as human beings. There's an ethic that God has given, and he even said it in, in, in Exodus and Leviticus also, as he repeated to the nation of Israel, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But that principle does not apply, it does not apply in the kingdom of God. Okay, and by that I mean, you know, instead, of, instead there's an ethic of forgiveness and reconciliation that characterizes the citizens of the kingdom, an ethic that portrays the gospel, because the gospel is not you get what you deserve. The gospel is Christ got what you deserve. And so church discipline, for example, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, it looks very different from the civil justice administered by the state. The goal is what? Restoration, reconciliation, which comes through what? Confession, repentance. These are things that are not part of the state, but but things that we understand in the church. In an ordinary criminal or civil lawsuit, it's irrelevant, really, if a, an accused person repents. If he committed a crime or caused someone loss, he should pay the penalty, whether or not he feels remorse or says he feels remorse. The demand is justice. But in the church, it would be a travesty to continue to the disciplinary process after there has been repentance out of a desire to give the sinner his due. Let me give you an example. If you go and you murder somebody, and you're caught for it, does that automatically, your murder, get you excommunicated from the kingdom of God? How about child molestation? How about rape? What's that? Yeah, the only sin that gets you excommunicated is rejecting, refusing to repent. Refusing to repent. Which is ultimately what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. There's no sin that will get you excommunicated. There are no criminal records in the church. There are no criminal records. And you might be surprised at some of the criminal records of your fellow parishioners and some of the things that people have done. Does the church do that? No, the state does that. So, right, that doesn't, that doesn't go away. See, we are always doing the either-or thing. It's both and. It's both and. You are both in the Noahic covenant and the new covenant, the new covenant of grace. Not everybody is in the new covenant. And so this offers forgiveness. And yeah, you are right with God, but there's still consequences for your sin, not in the church. We don't say, well, we can't tolerate that in the church. If the guy repents... Who am I to, to bring judgment? That's, that's up to the Lord. Vengeance is mine. I won't repay. But the state still has its job to do. And this is precisely what Paul gets at when he says in Romans 12, we're not, we as the church are not to have vengeance. Okay? But the state is going to bring vengeance from God, a temporary vengeance upon the evildoer. And so, yeah, we would visit the church member while he's on death row. And we would not shun him. We would, we, would, we would receive him as a brother. Ooh. 
And this is where the Pharisee in us comes out. Because we expect, well, no, they need to look at least as good as me if I'm going to receive them as a brother. Well, that's not the kingdom of God, guys. That's not the kingdom of God. That's not the kingdom of God. That's the Pharisee that said, I can't believe he went to go eat with that guy, that sinner, Zacchaeus. And we have this messed up view of Zacchaeus that he's this cute little guy, you know, and he climbed up in a tree because that stupid Sunday school song, stupid. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up into a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. No, 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 no. Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus is Joe Pesci in Goodfellas. Zacchaeus is a bad dude. He's a chief tax collector, a scary guy you don't want to cross, who ripped off Jews, the most unpatriotic sympathizer with the Romans. Everybody hated him. Dangerous, not cool, and he's drawn to Christ. And you see his heart begin to change. I restore fourfold if I have taken. I give half of my goods to the poor. goes way over and above the Mosaic Law. And how many of us, if we live in that society, would say, I can't do it. I can't do it. I hate Zacchaeus. I hate Zacchaeus. I lost my house because of Zacchaeus. Ah, that's where the gospel comes in, you see. That's where the gospel comes in. And we have to realize, well, what, what makes us so special? What if Jesus said, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't die for Mike Brown. I can't die for Mike Brown. The guy's a jerk. How can I deal? I, can't, I just can't do it. So the church has a different ethic in that sense. In that sense. And I, I don't want, I don't want to like polarize these in a way that we get confused. Like, oh, which ethic do I live by? We all live by this, this ethic of common grace, natural law, but the church has an ethic of forgiveness and mercy that the state does not. So the state's job is to protect its citizens. The state's job is not to necessarily show uh, mercy and grace. And that the church's job is to proclaim mercy and grace, to open up wide the doors to the kingdom of God and to let all in uh, who repent and believe. But it's not the, tr- the state's job to do that. Here's another example. Missionary task. Is it, is it right for the state? Is it right for, what if Nazi Germany, or America for that matter, I'm not comparing the two. I'm saying just saying, just hear me out now. Don't, don't get lost. Um, would it be right for America to say, we're going to take over the world? We're going to take over the world. Would it be right for us to do that? Would we trample on the civil liberties, the rights of other nations, if we just said, step aside, Canada, you're, you're ours. Mexico, you're ours. Would it be right for us to do that? I, I would hope we all know that that would be wrong. Yeah, I, yeah, I, would, I would hope. I would hope. I'm getting a little nervous at the, the, the dot, dot, dot here. Um, that would, that's called imperialism. That's what Hitler was trying to do. Stalin, hint, hint, you know, not good. Uh, it's to stay within the boundaries of its own country and protected citizens. But what about the church? Is the church imperialistic in a sense? You better believe it, baby. The whole world belongs to King Jesus. There are no borders. We send missionaries all over the world. 
to, to claim people for Christ. But we don't send, you know, the ambassador of, of America doesn't say, well, we're going to send uh, uh, people all over the world to claim them for America, to make them American. Um, that is, that, and if you even know a little bit of the Constitution, that, has, that is completely opposite from what we are as a country in America. So you can see the ethic is different. The ethic is different a little bit. And, uh, and, and let me close on this. And we, we have to remember that for Christianity, in that sense, we are very different from other world religions. Very different from Judaism and Islam. Contemporary Judaism is essentially a non-proselytizing religion. It is content to let Judaism be for the Jews, while Gentiles, you can relate to God in other ways. Uh, that's true. Um, had a wonderful lunch with a rabbi of the largest synagogue in San Diego uh, last year during the Feast of Tabernacles. It was really interesting. Talked about covenant theology for a long time. Brilliant guy. Studied under John Levinson. And I gave him a copy of Sacred Bond and we talked for a long time. And uh, his son and my son were on the same Little League team. See? Community. Get out there. It's interesting. And uh, yeah, he said, yeah, Judaism is not proselytizing religion that way. So we're different. What about Islam? Is Islam a proselytizing religion? Absolutely. But how does Islam proselytize? Through social revolution and sometimes violence. Because, granted, there are different kinds of versions of Islam. There, there are. There are Sufis, there are Shia, there's, there's Sunni, and they all sometimes fight amongst each other. There's different versions. And it's important to know the difference before you, you make a blanket judgment on it. However, the Quran teaches very clearly that uh, there is no separation of holy and common. All is to be claimed for Islam, for Allah. And uh, that is done through various forms, various forms of social revolution and violence. Christianity is not like that. Christianity does not have the sword. The sword has been given to the state. When Peter pulled out the sword and chopped off the guy's ear, what did Jesus say? Put it away. Sheath your sword. I'll bring the sword at the end of the day. I'll bring it at the end of the age. And the sword is given to the state. And so th- this is why when we, when we see atrocities happening, okay, like what happened, um, and I, I, let's just take the last one, for example. Not that all senseless killings are done by um, Muslims and not that all Muslims are terrorists. But let's take this last example. We should pray, because of Romans 13, that God would use his servant, the state, to punish the evildoer. And we should pray because of everything Christ tells us to in the New Covenant that the wicked would would be converted. That they would be converted. And and so uh, that is not contradictory. That is both and. Uh, We we hope that terrorism will be defeated. We hope that, uh, you know, things like Planned Parenthood would be defeated, but we pray for the salvation of those, because they're sinners like us, and they're made in the image of God like us. And so what we should be attacking is the ideology of Islam, and not, you know, Muslims in particular in themselves, because they are sinners like us. 
and we want them to have their mind renewed and their heart regenerated, just as God did the same with us. Any questions on, on these things, on the distinctions between uh, church and state? Any questions? According to whom? No, but I'm sorry. I'm back. I'm, not, I'm confused. Um, who, who is it that says that we are to? Can you, can you rephrase that again? I'm confused. Okay. Okay, but that's my question. Where are we supposed to love Israel as a state, as Christians? That's my question to you. Yeah. Well, I would say you don't love Israel as a state any more than you love Guatemala as a state. Well, it's a geopolitical nation. It's, they're, not the, they're not the covenant people of God as a nation. Um, sure, there should be a, an interest in evangelizing Jews in the sense that they uh, understand something about the Old Covenant, and we should bring the gospel to the Jews, but we're also to bring the gospel to, to Guatemalans and to everyone else. There is nothing holy about Israel as a nation. There's nothing set apart about it. So I guess that's where I'm... I'm I, yeah, there's nothing in Scripture that would tell me to hold Israel as a special geopolitical nation. Right, because of a, it's because of a, a form of theology called dispensationalism, which is the, the predominant form of theology in America. Yeah. Yeah, I would re- I would recommend listening to the lecture uh, that I did at um, at the eschatology conference on Matthew twenty four. That can be a, maybe a starting place to understand uh, the distinction, you know, between Israel as the covenant people of God and uh, Israel as um, a geopolitical nation today. Um, you know, whether or not America has interest in Israel, in defending Israel, that's a political question. That is not a religious question. Because according to the New Testament, the Israel of today is the church. There is neither Jew nor Greek. The, a Jew, Romans 2, a Jew is not one who is outwardly a Jew, but inwardly a Jew. Circumcision is not of the flesh, but of the heart. The middle wall, Ephesians 2, between Jew and Gentile has been broken down. Uh, there is only one man now, not two, one. So uh, Jew and Gentile... Is what who believe is what makes up this new Israel, the Israel of God, that is global and doesn't have a uh, doesn't have a land. And so, yeah, that's there's there's nothing about modern day Israel that uh, that is uh, connected to Christianity. So.
Well, I mean, again, I don't want this to sound self-congratulatory, but I would start with Sacred Bond. I really would. If you haven't read that book, you should read it. Because uh, you don't have to buy it if you're afraid I'll get rich and forget my Lord and Savior. Um, because, boy, I sure make a lot of money off that, let me tell you. Uh, uh, if you're worried about my head swelling or something like that, read it in secret. But you should read it, you should know it, because that's basic covenant theology. And it will clear up a lot of those, uh, those questions. Yeah, We have them in the library. You can read it at night with nobody looking. Big time. Big time. Yeah. You're interested in property rights? Yeah. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And this is why we need to understand what we... We can call it different things, Christianity and culture, or the two kingdoms doctrine. or what. We have to really understand these things, because if we don't, we get really squirrely. And then, like you said, Eric, we can, we can very easily influence the culture in a negative way. It, one, another example is if we confuse America with Israel, which is something that you know, a majority of evangelicals do today. And so they read the promises given to Israel as a nation as if they applied to America as a nation. And that gets pretty scary. And there's some who've taken it so far as you know, to think that you know, we're like Joshua when we go and, uh, you know, invade a land. I mean, just craziness. And so if we don't understand what God is doing in these covenants, um, it, 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 we can't help but get uh, real off base in our understanding of culture. And so, all right, I'll stop there. And uh, two weeks from now, we'll, we'll, do, we'll talk about vocations, common culture building, that kind of thing. And then after the new year, we'll spend a couple weeks on uh, the magistrate and uh, relating to that. And, and uh, if you have any other questions, I'll stick around for a few minutes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time you've given us. Please bless your word to our hearts, the word that we heard this morning. And the coming to your table, O oh Lord, we thank you for these means. We pray, Father, that your word would have its way in our lives and that we would live out boldly and joyfully. Uh, the ethic you have given us as members of your church. And we thank you, Father, for the things you've given us in common grace. And may they be used by us as well in a way that glorifies you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.